Welcome to the Unsophisticated Palate, a podcast about all things wine, beer, and spirits. Join us each week as we drink and delve into different alcohol-related topics. I'm Mark. And I'm Dave. Cheers. Cheers. All right, everybody. So, Dave, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for being here. If I have this right, you are the master distiller at Edinburgh Gin Distillery. Well, that's almost correct. My title's the head distiller here at Edinburgh Gin. I avoid using the title master distiller because uh, I think a lot of people use that word. Maybe they shouldn't be. And although I am fully qualified, I don't have the official master distilling dis- uh, certificate. So I wouldn't put myself quite in that bracket yet. Okay. Well, head distiller is still... <laughs> it's still a, still, a, still, a, still a pretty good role to be doing. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so first time we have anybody on the podcast, we always like to ask them a little bit about their history or relationship with alcohol because, you know, everybody's coming at the world a little different, right? So kind of get an idea of, of uh, how you got into what you're doing. So let's start with kind of a little bit of that history relationship. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it, it was just always the sort of uh, took, a, took a few years. Uh, I had originally gone to law school and didn't really care for it. Uh, ended up working in a bank for three years and uh, didn't really enjoy working in finance either. <laughs> yep. And it was while I was taking a bit of a break, backpacking around Europe, that I realized that no matter which country I, I went to, the first thing I wanted to try was, was, was the local food and drink, uh, be that you know, uh, the wine, the beer, the spirits. Uh, and I realized my enthusiasm for that was perhaps something that I could actually make a, a career out of. Nice. And uh, when I got back from backpacking, uh, I, le- I researched uh, the Hurriabot University International Center for Brewing and Distilling that yes. uh, do a master's in brewing and distilling. And I decided to apply for that. It was one year of quite intense study, including writing a dissertation on gin flavoring. And straight out of university, it, I suppose it was a bit, a little bit right place, right time. Uh, this, so this is my hometown in Durham, uh, northeast England. They're just opening up a gin distillery. Mm. And I get a call from my professor saying, the guy who's setting up Durham Gin has just called me. He says he's looking for a graduate who has some good experience and knowledge of gin. And I says, well, I'm, I've given him your number because you live five miles away. So I was like, well, that, that's great. Yeah. So, uh, so I met uh, with John uh, in uh, one of the local pubs in Durham. And before I knew it, I, I had uh, my first job. It was, uh, it was just on a consultancy basis because the distillery was just getting built. But I helped to devise the recipe and uh, got helped the distillery get up and running, did the first few batches. But then I had a call from another professor saying that Edinburgh Gym were recruiting. And it was probably the only job I would have left Durham for was Edinburgh Gin. Uh, I think just the chance to move back to Edinburgh where I'd studied, uh, which is an absolutely fantastic city. Yes. Uh, and the opportunity to work in a place that was a visitor center as well as a working distillery where I had so much interaction with the customers and the opportunity to, to do sort of a portfolio of gins. Uh, for the Edinburgh Gin range. It was a challenge that I couldn't turn down. So that was actually just over five years ago. So it was June 2014 that I started here at Edinburgh Gin and and the last five years has gone incredibly quickly. (laughs) Yeah, well, and that's a great story because I love that because I think a lot of us do that. We start down one path, right, and kind of realize we're not happy. I think a lot of people get stuck in that and they don't take that chance, obviously. Well, you took a chance by going out backpacking and, and all that, but then taking the chance by kind of taking that redirection in career. And obviously it pays off to get in good with the professors. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was one of those things, there was some luck involved. You know, I was in the right place at the right time and I took an interest in this at a point where there was an important legal change in the UK in 2009, mostly courtesy of Sipsmith distilleries who lobbied the government 
government saying that the old, I think it was something like 300-year-old law, that you couldn't use a still smaller than 1,800 litres in capacity because that was seen to be moonshining and something that was portable and you could hide from the excise man. Mm-hmm. Of course, 1,800 litres, it's actually gigantic. Uh, even the capacity we have at Edinburgh in our three stills combined is only 1,300 litres. Oh, wow. Okay. So when you look at it like that... Having to start with absolute minimum 1,800 litres still, no startup business can afford you know, that amount of plant, equipment, energy, and most importantly, we'll be producing the gin uh, in quantities where, where, you know, where's the customer base for the amount that you're going to be outputting. Yeah. So this change to the law really opened the gates for, for a lot of small startup distilleries to do real hands-on small batch stuff uh, and Edinburgh Gym were one of the first on that wave uh, after setting up in 2010 so it was a real good time to get into the industry finishing my masters in 2013 was when really the momentum was really picking up then and there was there was plenty of opportunity so it was it was well timed but it just goes to show that sometimes you've got to take a chance in life because I, I could have spent the last seven years working in an office and instead I'm working in a distillery so and that's awesome that's amazing yeah and, and great timing great timing and I gotta say we're on site here in the distillery um, recording when I just got done doing the kind of little tour and tasting and and that was just an amazing experience so I gotta say anybody in Edinburgh or near or if you're ever visiting come and come and say hi <laughs> yes I mean everyone's welcome yeah we are we are open seven days a week other than sort of like shooting for a little bit of time at Christmas uh, we have fantastic tour guides here they really do engage put on a show tell some amusing stories about gin's history a uh, bit of so they have the technical chat uh, about how we actually make the gin how we develop the botanical recipes and then i think the part that everyone enjoys the most you get to do some tasting at the end <laughs> definitely definitely and even if you don't know a lot about gin because i brought my brother and my sister along with me my sister i don't think had ever had gin and my brother had had it maybe a couple times and so having that tasting really opened both of their i, I mean you were you could see absolutely I, mean. <laughs> I, I could gauge that from their reactions and that's one of the things that we like here from the very start one of our biggest focuses as both of us at center and a working distillery was education because we have a very close working relationship with Hurriwatt University, where I graduated from. In fact, the first two and a half years of the five years I've been here, I was actually employed by the university on a graduate scheme. So with the ties with the university, sort of scientific understanding, uh, and basically letting people know not just what we do, but why we do it and how it all works, uh, is a big part of uh, the interactive experience that we have at Edinburgh Gen. Definitely. And, and it shows. And I think that that's also for anybody listening. I mean, they, they, the reason that I think most of our listeners are listening um, is because, like me, they're on a journey. They want to learn. And, and I think the key is, is just keep that open mind. Come in to the distillery, do the tasting, get the education. And you may find out you don't like gin, but you may also find out that, hey, this is some really good stuff. And there's a reason people are drinking it and talking about it. Yes, I, I, I think it's safe to say we've converted a few people. Uh, people have come in saying, oh, I really don't like gin. Uh, and I think a lot of that goes back to 10 years ago. There were maybe half a dozen gins on the market. They were all fairly similar. If you didn't like that very specific flavor profile, uh, then gin wasn't going to be for you. Whereas I think a lot of the small batch gins that you have these days, there's a lot more variety, lots of different choices of botanicals. And I think even within our range, there's uh, so much variety that there's usually something for everybody's taste. Uh, some people, I, I guess the the main flavor of gin has always got to be juniper. If you really hate the flavor of juniper, you're maybe not, <laughs> not going to be converted. Yep. But I think for a lot of people, 
uh, we've got them to change their mind. Uh, and I think it's also worth noting that as well as the development in small batch gins of the last decade, the quality of tonic water has improved as well. Yes. And I, I think going back to the days when you, know, you had tonic water on, on squirty guns made from syrup concentrates compared to the nice sort of stuff you get in bottles and cans now, I think you know, no matter how nice you make your gin, if you're using a really cheap tonic, it, it can really take the edge off and people will say, well, was that really worth paying the extra money for? Perhaps not. Yeah, no, and, and you'd mentioned that, and, and I actually want to talk about that a little bit, but we're going to come back around to the tonic. Um, first, let's just talk about gin itself. Like you mentioned, the juniper berry, uh, whatever. If if someone you know like me and or I've learned a little bit now, but uh, somebody like my brother and my sister who are here today know nothing about gin, how how would you tell them what gin is? So ultimately, gin is a distilled spirit with juniper as its predominant flavor. But in terms of what else can be a, a gin flavor? Essentially, botanicals can be anything from from the plant kingdom, be they seeds, berries, roots, flowers, leaves, stalks, you name it. If it's from the plant kingdom, you could potentially use it in gin. I I, I read somewhere that more than 200 different botanicals have been used in commercial gin production. And I read that a couple of years ago, so it wouldn't surprise me if we were nearing the 300 mark at this point. Uh, So we sort of, we do try to, you know, play by the rules, uh, should we say, and make sure that, you know, juniper is is the main focus. I think most of our gins are between 60 and 75% of the botanical mass is is juniper. Okay. There are other botanicals that you use can make uh, a, a, a very noticeable difference. Uh, I, I would say the, the common botanicals in gin are outside of juniper are usually there, the coriander seed, the angelica root, the orris root, and the licorice root. And by the time you've included those core five, you've probably got between 80 and 90% of the mass of your recipe. It's what you do with that last 10% mm-hmm. that can make you know all of these different flavor profiles so you might taste two of our gins that seem very very different and then if i showed you the recipe sheet you'd be amazed that they're 80 percent identical so that is sort of like one of the the beauties of gin that although it's always juniper based the potential for how you nuance that and add other flavors in is almost unlimited yeah, and I don't want to talk about some of what we tasted uh, again a little bit later today because I didn't. I think I realized how small of a variance there are in the recipe, um, but there was huge differences in the flavor profile. So we'll definitely go through some of those. So okay, so we've got uh, like a, a your your neutral flavored alcohol basically, right? There's it's mostly yeah, flavorless. We, we we generally refer to it as as grain neutral spirit, which is. Alcohol that has been distilled up to it, it's all like ninety six. Technically, you can go up to ninety six point four percent ethanol, and the other three point six percent is is just water, which is the the highest level you can distill a, a binary mixture of, of of ethanol and water. Okay, and then you're adding in the juniper, um, and the juniper is the juniper berry, um, yes, juniper specifically, um, and then and then all the other botanicals, um, which and. And I think, again, that was, for me, kind of eye-opening what a botanical was, because I just kind of hear juniper and botanicals, and you're like, well, what's a botanical? So thanks for uh, explaining a lot of that. And how do you get that into the, the, the alcohol itself? So we have two main methods of adding the botanical flavors into the alcohol. Uh, the first is a process known as macerating, which is we will steep 
the botanicals in the spirit overnight. Now, the, the spirit will come in at 96% alcohol. We will dilute that down to 50 in order to steep it uh, because some of the oils that we're extracting are, are soluble in ethanol and others are more soluble in water. So that 50-50 mixture is a nice balance. Nice. And uh, well, that, will, that, that will steep overnight and then that spirit and botanicals will go into the still and will be heated and brought up to its boiling point where it will evaporate through the still. And as the alcohol evaporates, it will bring those essential oils of the botanicals along with it. Okay, okay. Uh, the second method of adding flavor is known as vapor infusion. Now, the, the macerating method I prefer for seeds, berries, and roots, anything with a sort of like thick skin or, or shell, uh, because it, it helps to soften them up uh, and release the essential oil, which is normally under the skin in the middle. Mm -hmm. Whereas with flowers and leaves, the flavor tends to be more on the surface, and, and those botanicals are, are much more delicate. So you have those sort of macerated and, and boiled in the pot, and you can find that they'll very easily, they'll stew, and you can get slight burnt notes coming through whereas you vapor infuse them you just put them in a little bag and suspend them at the top of the still and the vapor will pass through them so the interaction is much more gentle than having them steeped and submerged so you'll get that nice light floral flavor but without actually damaging the plant material got it so it's just the vapors kind of passing through the the i guess like bags that are or hanging in there and that's it's absorbing it as it goes through pretty much exactly how it happens yes oh that's awesome okay okay and then it comes out um the other side and you've got gin basically right i well absolutely so after going through the uh, through the still and evaporating it will then come back down through the condensed units which will take it from a hot vapor at sort of 85 to, to 90 degrees celsius I'm sorry, I don't know that in uh, American or Fahrenheit. That's all right. <laughs> I, know, okay, well, I, know, I know 100 is 212. So we maybe looking at maybe 180 Fahrenheit, something something along those lines. And uh, so obviously, you know, we, we don't want to collect alcoholic vapor. We want, we want it uh, as a liquid. So it will go down through the condenser unit and the cold water in the condensers essentially acts as a heat exchanger and uh, brings the hot alcohol vapor back down to a liquid form. And it will run out of the bottom of the condenser at room temperature where we will collect it. Uh, and it will, in fact, at this point, be gin. Awesome. That is outstanding. Okay. So now we've got our gin. So before we kind of move on a little bit now, what would you say, or is there anything, and I'm assuming there's got to be, um, but different, unique, um, special you guys are actually doing here at Edinburgh, Edinburgh Gin Distillery. I, I got... I, I'm sorry, I'm American, uh, and so I used to always say Edin Edinburgh. I think sure, I've heard that before. <laughs> yes, and and so it's Edinburgh, and I'm I'm really trying to train myself to say this right. So <laughs> bear with me, everyone. It's okay. Everyone has a slightly different way of saying it. So I I, th I think probably what we do different here is more 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 so than anything. I would say it's the constant search. For, for new and unique flavors for for new botanicals or, or combination of botanicals and and trying to it, it gets harder and harder with the amount of gins that, that are out there but try to do something that has not been done mm -hmm. um so yeah for example uh, we, you know, we have the seaside gin with the botanicals that we uh, well we originally foraged them from from the east coast of scotland when it was a limited edition yeah, we do buy them in dried now uh, though the inspiration for that did come from from what was locally sourced uh, and th there are a few sort of like seaside uh, or seaweed flavored gins now but at the time we did that that was still quite a quite a new idea yeah and let's talk about that one because i tasted that one and that one um i mean it was delicious it was very smooth and and you 
you were telling us what you kind of brought in for that. So what 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 is it that goes into that when it makes it a little different? So uh, all three botanicals are ones that can be found uh, on the east coast of Scotland. When this was done as a limited edition, it was actually myself mentoring a, a student group who were basically studying the uh, the Brewing and Distilling Masters two years after me. So uh, a lot of this work was done at the labs at Harry Watt University. Nice. And we went on sort of, I guess, a bit of a nature walk, really, in uh, in East Lothian. We were just outside Dunbar in the John Muir Country Park, uh, and we had a, a bit of a walk. Went down to the beaches, and we collected some seaweed, which was specifically the, the bladderwrack seaweed, which is very common in the North Sea. It's the greenish-brown one with uh, all the bubbles on the leaves it's the one that goes all crunchy underneath your feet when it's dried on the beach okay and as you probably imagine you get a very green savory flavor from from the seaweed bit of a salty tang of layer uh, of the sea air mm-hmm. uh, we also found up on the cliff tops now this was good timing when we were doing this because we would know uh, we were producing this uh, it was around easter time uh, we found some scurvy grass on the clifftops, uh, which doesn't sound particularly appealing. <laughs> no. But, but scurvy grass gets its name because it's very high in vitamin C. That makes so, sense, okay. So sailors would gather it from the clifftops as a, as a remedy for scurvy. Uh, so so it was there. It, it had sort of like a, a medicinal property. Uh, scurvy grass is a, is a relative of horseradish and mustard. Ah, okay. So there's a nice, warm, spicy, savory flavor from the scurvy grass that goes very nicely with sort of like the sharp slight salinity that you get from the seaweed. But then what people don't always expect is that the seaweed has quite a high sugar content. So there's quite a bit of sweetness as well as the savory notes. And that sometimes that is, is the part that people aren't, aren't as ready for. Yes. And, and the third botanic we have from the east coast of Scotland is, is ground ivy. Uh, and again, I know that's a slightly iffy sounding one, but it's, it's not <laughs> crawling ivy ground into a powder. It's, it's a, a different plant. Uh, it's sort of, it grows in the, in the grassy areas close to the coast. It's got very, very distinct purpley blue flowers, very, very pretty plant. And it's a relative of parsley. Okay. So that one uh, is light and fresh. And the interesting thing with that one is I wouldn't say that you specifically taste that botanical in the gin but you notice when it's not there because the other ones aren't balanced so it, pl- it plays more of a, a subliminal role in the flavor okay and, and i'm glad and that one of the reasons i want to talk about that is because that gets back to you know the botanicals right which again is kind of this big broad term you said there's 200 300 or whatever maybe out there um and so those are the botanicals that are going in there that are giving it that flavor so uh, out of curiosity, too, I mean, obviously you've studied and you know, um, did you know these plants? Did you know kind of what you were looking for? Or how did you kind of just, it sounds like you're out in a walk and you saw them. How did you know, I want so this? So <laughs> the seaweed I was familiar with because my master's dissertation was written on flavoring gin with seaweed. Oh, there you so go. So <laughs> I had some prior experience with that particular area. The other two, we actually went on this nature walk with uh, a local botanist. So she guided us, uh, most importantly, I would say, to, to, to things that were safe. Because mm-hmm. don't want to start just sort of picking anything and eating it. That can be quite risky. So, so she guided us and gave us some recommendations of things that we could pick. Uh, and then myself and the student team, we took them uh, to the labs and distilled them so we could get an idea for which flavors would actually distill over into a spirit uh, and then we made the decision to stay with with the seaweed the scurvy grass and the ground ivy nice see and that's that's what i love is all this little everything there's so much that goes into this right you think it's just a bottle of gin and you're drinking it and it the thought and the work and everything that goes into that and the experimentation into those flavors and, and deciding what they are always just kind of fascinates me i always wonder who thinks of this up 
and you're the, one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I yes, I, I I certainly am, and, and it's yeah, it, 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 I think the first part is going out there and finding the botanicals, and then it becomes a case of using them the right way, getting the balances right, getting the ratios right. If I remember correctly, I think we did twenty four small scale distillations of the seaside gin. Uh, wow, twelve of them. Uh, in the laboratory at Harriet Watt on glass stills, 12 on small copper stills here at the distillery. And uh-huh. after 24 iterations, we said, okay, we like it. This is the right balance of flavor. This is the recipe that we're going to scale up and actually produce on the full size still. And that went good. And so that's, I mean, so you have the basic gin, of course. And so that's one of the variations. And then you also have, which I found fascinating. And again, I think because it goes back to, again, I think understanding or helping understand what the the botanicals are because the juniper again for me understanding first of all that it was a berry because i hear juniper i assumed a tree and i don't always thought like are they putting branches or twigs or, or needles or something in there so it's the actual berries um but again understand what all those botanicals are so you have another one it's it's your botanical gardens so, yes so yes. tell me let's talk a little bit about that because that's fascinating so yes yeah, so, so so the gin zone is 1670 and uh, it's made in partnership with the Royal Botanic Garden of Edinburgh. The 1670 refers to the year that the Physic Garden opened in Edinburgh, which was a very small plot of land in Hollywood Park, and it was set up by local doctors who were growing plants for medicinal uses. Uh, That was the original location. Uh, It moved in the 1700s, and then I think again in the late 1700s, and in 1820, it moved to its current location, which is in Inverleith. So it'll be, yeah, that was 1820. It'll be coming up on 200 years next year. Uh, so just a little while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, quite, quite, quite a significant uh, bicentennial, I think, is the, is the right term there. Yeah. And that is now known as the Royal Botanic Garden of Edinburgh. So from that very small plot of land grown by local doctors, it has developed to, to one of the biggest botanic gardens in the uh, in the world. Uh, I believe the last time I checked, I think there were 14,000 species of plant wow. within the, the Royal Botanic Garden, which is, uh, which is phenomenal. It is. Um, <laughs> now, obviously, those 14,000, they're not all appropriate for, for making gin with. Yes. <laughs> but it did really open the door to... Access to plants that I never would have been able to get from a regular botanical supplier, and I think also working with one of like the greatest botanists going, uh, Dr. Greg Kenneser, he took me around the garden and he recommended plants that had interesting flavors mm-hmm. and, and a lot of this was we were going around the garden and we were rubbing hands seeing if they had a good oil content that could be extracted smelling them we probably looked a little bit crazy if <laughs> i'm being honest yeah but there was a there, there was a lot of method in in what we were doing because we were trying to see you know what can realistically be distilled what has an interesting flavor so i think we took about 16 plants and distilled them all individually here at the distillery. Some of them, unfortunately, yeah, it might uh, smell or taste fantastic in its solid form, but the oils perhaps don't distill over into a spirit, so mm. yeah, it, it, it's no good. Um, some of them you know, individually might taste great, but maybe didn't go well when you started to pair them with juniper and other traditional gin flavors. But we did come across some very interesting botanicals in the garden, and we have five freshly picked leaves from the Royal Botanic Garden that go into every batch of the 1670 gin nice see and again that's that's just fascinating but it, it comes to having or finding those connections i mean i guess you could work with some of the standard 
ones that are out there everybody knows but again if you want to do something different if you want to stand out you want to have that slightly different flavor finding those connections uh, the botanist who took you on the on the walk the the one at the botanical gardens these are the kind of the, the good friends to have and or make right yeah they absolutely are i mean anybody with a good understanding of plants particularly on a scientific level can be a massive asset as someone to collaborate with when you're when you're a distiller because ultimately gin distilling is all about botanics it's all about the plants uh, and extracting their flavor and extracting their essential oil so working with someone who has such a brilliant understanding of plants can give you access to 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 ideas and the plants that you might never have thought to use before definitely okay and so there's another one i want to talk about a little bit because i think the story even just behind the the name on this one is fun and that's the the cannonball right so um i'm gonna let you kind of tell this because i'll just butcher it so so tell us about the cannonball and and uh, uh, the liquor itself but also kind of the story behind the the history and the name sure so 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 cannonball is a navy strength gin uh, navy strength being it's it's sort of just over 57 percent alcohol uh, which is 100 proof on the UK proofing system. Uh, the US proof system is is a little simpler. It, it's double the alcoholic content, so you know 50% alcohol is is 100 proof. It, it, the math is very complicated with the UK system because of the way that it's based. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does go back to the days of the the British Navy when it's still sort of like the tall wooden ships and the gin uh, and probably also rum, given that we're talking uh, sailors here. Yep, would be kept below deck in wooden barrels and uh, also below deck would be the gunpowder reserves. Now, when the seas were rough and the barrels collided and split, you would get leakage. And if the alcohol gets on the gunpowder, the gunpowder's damp, it can't ignite, it's essentially rendered useless. That's a problem. A big, big problem <laughs> when you're uh, when you're on a naval ship. Yes. Uh, now, I'm not actually sure. I'd have to look this up uh, as to how they discovered this, mm-hmm. but they came to a realization that if the alcohol was above 57.1%, it would ignite... Uh, so the, the alcohol if, burns. The, uh, yeah, the alcohol would, would, would burn. So even if you got it on the gunpowder, the gunpowder would still ignite if the alcohol spilled on it was above 57.1%. <laughs> so, uh, so captains and admirals would actually uh, basically test the alcohol coming on board and would basically say that it has to be minimum 57.2% to come on board a British naval ship. So the 100 British proof is essentially 100% proven to be seaworthy. And uh, so, <laughs> so they can all... still fire off the cannons. In, Absolutely. In a and uh, a, a great excuse to have very strong gin and rum on board your ships. <laughs> yes, right. I like I like that. It's for the cannons. It's not for us. Right? Absolutely. It was purely there for, for pragmatic purposes that... Uh, yes. You never know when accidents are going to happen, and very important that your cannonballs can still be fired if uh, if the ship comes under siege. Yes. So, <laughs> so it, 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 it is an interesting concept, uh, the Navy strength. Uh, I was reading, I was reading into it. Uh, it was just, it was just last week. Uh, I, th- I think there's a simplified fraction. I think if if you divide four by seven. I think it gives you sort of like the 57.1 something that's rounded up to 57.2 because uh, a lot of Navy strengths, they might just do it at 57 uh, and, and 57.1 is where a lot of them go because to one decimal place, that would be correct. Uh, but it's actually something like 57.14. So I thought to myself, well, if that's actually technically a minimum 
I should round up. So That's I was, what I would think. Yeah. So I was just 57.2, which actually makes it just a tiny bit different. Well, not just round up to 58 and keep it easy, but I mean, I'm not good at math. There, so. <laughs> there, there, there could be something in that. Maybe maybe around 58 would have been a good way to go. Um, but I mean, I, I think uh, I, I'm very, very proud of our Navy strength gin because a lot of Navy strength gins will just be their regular gin uh, and they'll they'll dilute it less because the gin will distill up to about 80% alcohol mm-hmm. and you then just add add water before you bottle so you bring it down to, to say 40 43%. So you can just add less water and mm-hmm. bring it down to 57 and and then you're good to go. That's your gin and it's been bottled noticeably stronger. Yes. Uh, and that's okay as far as it goes. But then it's just a stronger gin basically. I mean and that's about it, right? Es- es- essentially essentially yes. And I think at 57%, it, it could potentially be a little harsh. So we developed the cannonball recipe to be designed. It's designed as a Navy strength gin. We don't actually have this recipe bottled at regular strength. You buy it as a Navy strength. And what we've done is we've put in 50% more juniper than our classic gin and twice as much citrus. Mm. So the beauty of that is all of that extra juniper and citrus oil means that it's, it's oily and it's viscous and it coats your tongue. Uh, and you don't get that burn that you would get from 57% vodka. You know, you know, the, the alcohol burn, uh, it, it, the edge is taken off. Um, and I definitely noticed that when I tasted it. It was not, you know, it did not feel like this super strong alcoholic burn. It was nice and, and fairly smooth and, and a little stronger in the flavors, which was awesome. Yeah, it's, it's strong flavor. It's definitely full flavored. And I think the bit that sometimes catches people out the first time they try is we use uh, in, uh, a little cardamom and Szechuan pepper. Uh, now, Szechuan pepper is a very hot and spicy pepper, mm-hmm. and you will get a lot of that in the aftertaste. But the reason we've gone for that is the Szechuan pepper will give a nice spicy tingle sort of on the roof of your mouth and maybe the sides, mm-hmm. but it won't be the harsh alcoholic burn going down that you would get with very strong vodka or sort of like a, a, a gin with less botanical flavor oil. So it's it's sort of warm and tingling. I'd, I'd liken it to a cast strength whiskey that it's full flavored, it's bit spicy it's warm going down but it's not harsh and burning yeah um and yeah interestingly despite its strength a lot of people who do our tasting as have said they actually think that's the easiest one to <laughs> sip on its own because it has got that very oily smooth mouthfeel to it because of all the extra juniper in there yeah and you said that that's a good one if you're a, a whiskey drinker or something else don't think you like gin that's a good one that might convert you i i would say so generally when we've had people visit who say I'm not really into gins. I'm really more a whiskey drinker. That's usually when I'll say, well, you know, I'm a whiskey drinker as well, but I think that you'll like this particular gin. You know, it's warm, it's spicy, it's got a full complex flavor. And yeah, a lot of whiskey drinkers do say, actually, yeah, if I was going to go for a gin, that, that's the one I would go for. Nice. Okay, so I'm going to bring it back a little bit because I w- I've wondered about this and now I've got an opportunity to ask. So I've heard before they add water to, you know, bring down the proof. Um, and that's very common in many alcohols. So tell me a little bit. I mean, is this like just a distilled water? I mean, how do you, you just dumping some water in there or is there something special to that process? Okay. So the, uh, well, I mean, you probably notice here that we have a bit of a lack of space here yes. and you probably <laughs> notice that there isn't a bottling line. Yeah. Uh, so we use a, a local bottling plant. Uh, it's, 
Oh, trying to find something. So it's on the edge of Edinburgh by the airport. It's, it's maybe 20 miles away. It's called Broxburn Bottlers. Uh, so we send our gin there for bottling, and they will dilute it from the distillate strength of probably about 80% down to the bottling strength. And they'll use something that's known as demineralized water, okay. which has been through a, a reverse osmosis process to get rid of generally so like you know, metallic ions and minerals that can react with the oils in the gin well, and can affect sense. the flavor. Okay, so it's kind of just like a neutral, trying to make it as neutral of a water as they can. Es- essentially, yes. It's it basically sort of purifying the water so it doesn't interfere with the flavor in the spirit. Got it. And then you just add enough to get to the proof you want, uh, stir it up, I guess, and, and bottle it. Yeah, right? I mean, I mean it, it will be sort of agitated to make sure that every bottle is, is even. I know from trying to dilute things by hand that you've got to give it a very good shake because uh, the ethanol is only... 80% as dense as the water. So often if you don't shake it, it may layer a bit. It might be, say, 46% on mm-hmm. the top, only 40 on the bottom, and the 43 you're actually aiming for is right in the middle. So you do need to really agitate the, uh, the liquid uh, and get every bottle even. Okay, awesome. I, I just figured you mentioned that. I'm like, I got somebody I can ask because I've always kind of wondered about that in that process because I don't know, it, in your head, I think sometimes you're, they're just watering it down is, is what you think. But that's, I mean, and I guess technically that's it, but it's, it's a little bit more than that. And again, it's really not affecting flavor. It's just getting it to the alcohol level that, that you're shooting yeah, for. Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely right. Uh, the flavor's all added as part of the, the distilling process. I, I mean, uh, certainly if, if you're making a London dry gin, which is certainly the gins that we've already discussed in our range are all London dry gins, then all of the flavor is added as part of the distilling process. And the only thing you add post-distillation is, is water to bring it down to the appropriate bottling strength. Okay. Excellent. So, and then bring it all the way back because we tease people early on. So let's talk about uh, adding the tonic because that really surprised me. Now, first of all, I think it makes a lot of sense. We said like you, you know, if you're getting a quality gin, you should be drinking or getting a quality tonic as well because that just, (laughs) I hadn't thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense, right? You get a good gin, you know, put in some poor quality tonic and and why bother? Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. I, I mean, you can... You can put all of the work that we put in into making the most fantastic tasting gin. You can be so completely happy with the gin in the bottle, but I've still tasted the gins that we've made with a very cheap tonic and thought to myself, "Mm, it's not brilliant sort of (laughs) when you serve it like that. So, yeah, so we do encourage people to to use good quality tonic and everyone's taste is different. Uh, And and I, I would also say that more expensive is not always better. There are um, some very affordable tonics that I think are actually very good. Um, but I think probably the the very premium ones you, you will pay a, li- a little more for. But, it, but it's worth it because if you're going to have a good gin, it deserves to be paired with a good quality tonic. And we generally have, in terms of our perfect serve, we might have a, a slightly different tonic recommendation for uh, for every given gin in the range. But I think part of developing the gin recipe is like yes you know you can have a perfect tonic match but you need to make sure that it tastes good with with any tonic of good quality otherwise you know there's something a little bit missing in, in what we've done if mm-hmm. people can't sort of pick up you know uh so sort of like any decent tonic put it in and and enjoy yeah uh, i think it i think it's yeah it, it, it's it's a fine balance but I, I think, yeah, it would be very foolish as a ginger cell to say that the tonic doesn't play an important role as well in the overall quality of the of the gin and tonic serve that people receive. Yeah, yeah. And, and you were even pairing the tonic to the gin a little bit in what we were tasting. And, and I think that was something I hadn't really even thought of. So um, 
get a get a quality gen. I'm sorry. Well, definitely get a quality gen. Um, preferably Edinburgh, <laughs> right? Uh, I would hope so. <laughs> yes, um, and then get a quality tonic as well, and then maybe put some. Now, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts or advice on how you would match a tonic to a gin, or is that too complicated to to put in easy? It's it's difficult to give a sort of a blanket answer for that because a lot of ours is done by trial and error. You know, we'll get the gins to a point where we're very, very happy with the recipe and we'll taste them neat and we'll be like, yes, this has got a great flavor profile. Uh, we're happy with it. Uh, and then we will taste it with a, a variety of tonics. And I mean, I, I suppose in theory, it's possible that you might love it neat and uh, and not like it with any tonic. Uh, and that did happen with a with a prototype I once had, uh, a product that it, it didn't ultimately come to market because although it, it tasted pretty good neat, uh, it really didn't work uh, with any tonic. And nine out of ten people are going to try the gin with tonic. Yeah. And if that's not uh, something that people are going to enjoy, it's not going to be a successful gin. You have to be really honest about that. But what we'll normally do is, you know, we'll get the product finalized, we'll taste it with a, a range of, of tonics and we'll say, okay... That one and that one, you know, it really complements the flavor, brings the flavor out. Maybe the other ones, you know, it's okay, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't show it in all its glory. And, mm -hmm. and that's when we'll say, okay, well, this will be the recommended tonic to go with to go with that gin. That makes sense. But the goal is, of course, to make it go with as many as you can. Absolutely. Right? I mean, you've got to keep it uh, versatile. And I, and I think if you just sort of like look for the premium brands and, and look for their standard tonic, you know, mm -hmm. you get a lot of sort of flavor tonics, but I think if you've got a, a gin that, I, I'm, I'm not going to use a specific example, but there's a lot of, you know, random flavor. It's like, oh, this gin, gin tastes great, as long as you use uh, cardamom and black pepper tonic water. I was like, it sounds to me like maybe you're hiding something behind that <laughs> flavor tonic water. Yes. Um, I think you've got to make sure that, it, that the gin tastes good with a regular tonic water, and then you can go on to sort of recommend it. Oh, but yeah, if you use, say, an elderflower infused tonic, then that's even better. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think if you do that, that's absolutely fine. But if you get ones where, oh, it tastes pretty grim with a normal tonic. But if you put this fancy flavor <laughs> one in, it's okay. That's probably not the best approach. Yes, okay, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And then you also recommend, um, or in, in general, kind of a two-to-one, kind of a two-tonic-to-one two gin mixture, which... I think that's a good way to taste it. Uh, if I'm doing analytical work, I might even do it 50-50. But okay. I think if you're wanting so like a regular G&T, I think, yeah, two parts tonic to one part gin is enough that... It it reduces the alcohol level it opens the gin up but you can still definitely taste the gin you know you haven't drowned your gin so to speak uh, i i see too many instances of people taking a single measure of gin and putting a, a whole bottle of tonic in and even with the punchiest gin flavors in the world you're really going to struggle to taste much of the gin when there's that much tonic water in there so i think yeah keep your keep keep your ratio sensible and uh, that'll be the the best way to really enjoy and perhaps most importantly be able to genuinely tell the differences between the different gins out there. Um, because I think if you put in so much tonic, they might all start to taste pretty much the same. Whereas you're a little bit more hold back with the tonic, you can really get an idea for which gins you're a fan of and which ones not so much. Excellent, excellent. Um, and so this has all been great. I think uh, we're going to wrap up here. But before we do, I want to get some of any kind of parting words or thoughts for somebody who's, again either loves gin and or is thinking about trying gin um just kind of i don't know what would you want to share with the world how's that 
Well, I mean, I, th- I think we're at a point now where there's so much gin out there to try. I'll probably say, I mean, if, you, if you're already a gin fan, you're probably doing this already. If you're interested in gin, then I would certainly recommend get out to, you know, um, a, a local gin bar or, or you know, sort of like a, a local wine and spirit store that maybe don't mind doing samples or come visit a distillery uh, where you can try uh, the wares. Yeah, I would say just get out there and and try things and see what your personal flavour preferences are. And uh, as I was saying, you know, don't be afraid to maybe sip a few gins neat. It may not be customary to drink gin neat. It's not sort of like whiskey or anything like that. But I always encourage people, have a good smell and a couple of sips on its own and then add the tonic in and see how the flavour opens up. And I think if you taste it like that, you'll get more of an appreciation for which gins you genuinely do really like rather than just being convinced you like something because it was hidden behind a lot of tonic water and fancy garnishes. Mm -hmm. And and that was amazing. That was eye-opening to me too as we were tasting. You had me do that. You had me sip just the gin a little bit and then put in the tonic. And it was amazing to get this the gin flavour and then how it opened up and how many new flavors I got and, and how different it was with the tonic in it. So I think that's amazing advice. So, um, what are you, what are you drinking these days? What is your go-tos? Well, um, I, I would say my, my favorite spirit is Scotch whiskey. Uh, I've been a, a fan of Scotch whiskey for many years. In fact, when I went to study distilling, uh, I dreamed of being, uh, a scotch whiskey distiller mm-hmm. but i i was studying at a time where gin was very much on the up and the other beauty of gin is that whereas whiskey takes obviously several years to mature gin yes. is is a fast process and my professor gave me some advice saying i know you're a whiskey fan but you also told me that you really want to get a new product and sort of put your own stamp on something and gin will give you the ability to do that because you can develop your recipes, taste them, go back to them and reiterate them. You can do it so much faster with gin than you can with whiskey. It gives you much more scope to be creative and that was a fantastic piece of advice from my professor that I'm very grateful for. Um, would like to work in whiskey at some point in my in my career but right now I'm very much in the gin zone. Yeah and, and doing great, doing great because again, uh, head distiller and every you know i'm walking away with several bottles out of here today uh, that i purchased because that's it's phenomenal product i mean it's it's fantastic to to sit down with people and do a tasting and see people genuinely really enjoying sort of like what what you're offering them and and i mean the fact that yes you yourself and your family have left with uh, with a couple of bottles each is it's 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 great to see that you've enjoyed it so much and uh, yeah, I hope you you thoroughly enjoy those when you get them back, and hopefully spread the word as well. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, definitely, definitely, and and uh, and hopefully everyone listening will give it a try. It's available in the states. Yes, uh, uh, the gins are available in the states, with the exception of the Botanic Garden gin. That one is only available in the UK because of the limitations of how many plants we can take from the Botanic Garden. That makes sense. Okay, so check it out. And where can they get more information? You guys have a website. What's yeah, the best place? if you check out. Ooh, here we go. What's the website? www.edinburghgin.com or .co.uk. Can never quite remember. Though, to be honest, if you Google Edinburgh Gin, it will definitely come up. And you can buy all of our products online. <laughs> okay, excellent. And and we'll correct that. If not, we'll we'll make that correction in there somehow. Or, and we'll put it in the show notes, all that other good stuff. So cool, we'll make thank sure you. everyone Appreciate can find that. you. Um, excellent. Okay. And so uh, if you want a summary about what we talked about today, if you have any kind of questions or input, ideas for future topics, we're at uh, the unsophisticatedpalette.com. Uh, definitely subscribe, tell all your friends and rate us. And until next time, drink responsibly. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.